This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by TouringPlans.com. Head over to TouringPlans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the Crowd Calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the Touring Plans to save time and money waiting in line. TouringPlans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. everybody to the Disney Film Project podcast. This is the show where we talk about the films of the Walt Disney Company, be they Blu-rays, be they in the stores, in on the shelves for you to buy, or if they're in the theaters for you to buy tickets and enjoy some popcorn, if they're in the theme parks where you can get yourself a Dole Whip and settle in to watch whatever snack you choose. Uh, we hope that you will also enjoy some something while you are listening to this fine show where we talk about those very films. I'm Ryan Kilpatrick, and, and along with these folks, we run DisneyFilmProject.com, where we do exactly that same thing, only uh, in the written word, uh, as well as hosting some of these here podcasts. So make sure you head over there. Uh, we like to talk about the shorts and things and blogs of the films. Uh, we're a little behind. Apologies for that, but uh, we will catch up soon and try to get all those blogs going again of the, the chronological viewing of all the Disney shorts and films and all that good stuff. So uh, keep your eyes peeled, and we will get that stuff underway. All right. As usual, we have the fine film experts that uh, you have come to know and love and cherish. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say that you cherish them because I hope you do. Uh, I do, and the first among them is Mr. Todd Perlmutter who is a blogger over at touringplans.com. He is chief technical officer at disneydrivenlife.com. He uh, does work over at on the go in mco.com and he also is going to help me figure out um, why this film was animated by three men with a crayon. <laughs> I thought it was watercolor, I don't know. I, I don't know what it was, but it wasn't good. No, no, no. Well, there are there are reasons we can talk about that, but you know, keep with the introductions. Yes, I'm sure we will. Uh, normally, we also have Miss Brianna Alessio, who couldn't be with us this evening, but you can find her blogs about this film as well as other films over at DisneyFilmProject.com. And of course, there is always uh, the glue that holds this loose conflagration of craziness together, and that is Miss Cheryl Perlmutter, who you can find at about.me slash Cheryl P3. You can find her occasionally over at on the go in MCO.com, or you can follow her on Twitter at Cheryl P3. How are you, Cheryl? I'm doing good. And don't forget, Bri, you'll have to watch this because people will keep track of it. Yes, which is scary because uh, I think. We can all agree that after watching today's film, which is The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, uh, that human eyes were not meant to be subjected to this sort of torture. I'm just wondering what they're going to put on the Blu-ray about this one. I'm wondering – so we talked about this when we talked about uh, some of the other Blu-rays that are coming out. Disney's doing this now where they put out the Blu-ray with the original and then the uh, not-as-original direct-to-video sequels of the film. So they did it with Mulan and Mulan 2. Fox and the Hound, Fox and the Hound 2, and now we are at Hunchback and Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, which we are uh, reviewing this evening. And uh, that is unfortunate for us, uh, as well as for you people who have to listen to it, although we will try to make it as interesting as we can. Apologies. Uh, but this this 
gosh, I, I rented the movie and uh, had my kids, you know, shower early and everything, so we could all huddle up together as a family and watch the movie. Uh, and and now my children will not let me pick movies anymore. Um, I have a I have a fact about this. Your wife tweeted that she was hiding in the car to avoid coming in, so she would not be able to see this movie. She did. She she did that. She was answering emails in the car. Uh, after dropping the kids off, so that she would not have to watch this, and then she then she left the room at some point, uh, and and that's like a big no no. You know, if you're having family movie night, you don't leave. And you, you know, everybody turns their devices off, and you know, we all watch the movie together. And and she couldn't take it; she couldn't handle it. And I don't blame her. <laughs> so um, let's discuss why this movie might stink. I'm going to go with the aforementioned uh, three men and a crayon animation. That That is about right. I mean it's not here, – here's the thing. So it's done by – in the States, it was known as Walt Disney Television Animation. Yes. Okay? But it was Walt Disney Animation Japan. That That's really the same place if you ever hear those two. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, by the way. It was closed in 2004. Which probably is the as, Probably as a result of this movie. I know they put out like one more movie after it, but I – this was pretty much like the one that sealed the deal for their demise. Yeah. So uh, I was watching this, like I said, watching, watching this. And um, if you follow me on Twitter at Ryan Kilpatrick, uh, you'll, you'll notice that, you know, my children are obsessed with Netflix and we watch a lot of eighties uh, cartoons. So they got hooked on She-Ra. Uh, they got hooked on, or, or I tried to expose them to Gem and the holograms which I still say is quality entertainment. What a good father you are. I know. Thank you. Uh, we've watched He-Man. We've watched all of those things. Now, again, remember, these are things that were made in the mid er, mid to early 1980s. The animation in those is better than this, and I'm not making that up. You know what I'm saying in my head right now? What's that? Mask Crusaders working overtime. <laughs> yes! Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we, we really don't want to talk about Hunchback of Notre Dame, too. We want to talk about other things. Uh, but it, I'm, I'm not making it. Todd, can you back me up on this? Like, the animation in this is, really looks like it came from Saturday morning cartoons from, like, the mid-1980s. And, and, and this is not surprising. I mean, okay, well, granted, this was done by a studio that was responsible for all the Disney animation of the 90s. Uh, including things like gargoyles and you know things that are pretty popular like that. But if you look at those things, it, this is still like a step down from that. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, because I like gargoyles, and and part of that's the story. But the animation in gargoyles was at least sharp, and you know you could tell who the characters were. I mean, when this film opens, right? It opens with a shot of like a, of, of the courtyard out in front of the cathedral of Notre Dame and everybody is getting ready for this festival L'Amour, which is the, it's uh, the festival where they talk about love and everybody comes and proclaims their love for each other under this big flowery arch while Quasimodo rings the bell. They, it's, it's, it's a pan shot, right? So they're panning in and zooming into the courtyard. The people below are literally like shapes. They're not people. They're just like a circle on top of a square with two sticks beneath them. And I'm – you may think I'm exaggerating that, but I am not. 
I, I also feel like if you through the whole of the movie that Quasimodo was animated by eighteen different children because he it like literally he did not hold the same shape from like section of the movie to section of the movie. No, not I agree completely. Well, and even the main the his his love interest in the movie, which spoiler alert, that's what the movie's about, is Quasimodo falling in love, which that's a whole other road we could go down. Uh, but Madeline, his love interest, she looks different in almost every scene of the movie. And he thinks she looks like Tinkerbell. Yes. Because but like if you look at if you look at her on the cover of the DVD and then what she is in the movie, they don't even look like the same character. That may be. I'm not I didn't even think about that. I, you know why? Because I, I rented it online, so I don't know what the DVD cover even looks like. Well, and you're right. Like he carves her as this little Tinkerbell looking thing. Because remember, from the first movie, he has the the whole you know path. Uh, what's what do you call it? The model set, I guess, yeah. uh, where he had, he carves the figures of the town because he can't go out. Now, why he still has this when, as we see at the very beginning of the movie, Quasimodo's out in the square you know, with everybody. So there really is no reason for him to still have this. Well, but he I, has it, and he carves this figure of Madeline that looks, you're right, exactly like Tinkerbell. It could be um, a hobby thing. I don't know. You, know. you know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, at that point, he probably says, well, you know, I still like doing this, you know, so I'll just keep on doing it. It's It's part and parcel, though, of the whole kind of the way that this movie basically picks up on things from the first movie and then completely ignores the vital subtext and you know psychological ramifications of what happened in the first movie right because uh, the gargoyles is another great example of that the gargoyles is um i feel like um the two main characters from the first movie esmeralda phobus phoebus 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 right? They were, like, not even the same characters. No, not even close. Um, I mean, he was I – I, I mean, they just, like, made him, like, this weird guy who couldn't say anything that wasn't insulting to anybody. That's what, like – yes. like, the whole movie, he just went around insulting literally everybody. Yeah, everything, everything Phoebus said was an insult to everyone else in the movie. Uh, especially Esmeralda, who, by the way, okay, so the movie is set six years after the original movie. Yes. They don't tell you this necessarily, but it is. The way you can figure it out is because Phoebus and Esmeralda are married, and they have a six-year-old son who they name Zephyr. Yes. I just that want that a, to sink in. Is that even a French name? I, I don't think so. Right, so... only thing I could think of was the Golden Zephyr. Which was what I came to me. The Golden Zephyr? Okay. Which is a ride in Disneyland. Oh. Uh, Alright, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I just I don't know yeah, much about the Golden Zephyr. <laughs> maybe, She's grasping at straws maybe here. Someone and else, I think... Maybe someone else there does. But that's what I came up That's the only thing I saw. And Todd, you forgot to neglect. I, made, I actually made Todd stop. During this, and said, "I said, is it me or is it my glasses, <laughs> or is this something wrong with our TV?" That's right. Cheryl, Cheryl actually didn't realize that the animation was so bad that she thought something was wrong with her eyes. 
Yeah, I can Liter- understand that. Literally happened, not making it up. <laughs> I can completely understand that because it's really, really bad. Uh, but but so okay, so Phoebus and Esmeralda are married. They have this six-year-old son who's out there getting ready for the festival with everybody else in the opening part of the movie, including Clopin, who, speaking of somebody who's a completely different character. Yes. I mean, he, he doesn't, he's above ground. He's not leading anything. He's just, you know, waltzing around singing. It's and weird. That's, that's all he does in the movie. He's not even a character. He's just a singing voice. Yeah. He serves no purpose in this entire thing other than to sing. Esmeralda and Phoebus are married. Yet, Esmeralda is still wearing the exact same clothes she wore in the fir- throughout the entirety of the first movie. She looks exactly the same. And she still is supposed to perform her whatever siren dance later on in the movie. I'm thinking if the captain of the guard's wife up on starts performing siren dance, there's going to be some problems. Yeah, I'm. I'm not really sure. It was. It's just kind of. It's odd. I think they just took all these elements of the first movie and stuffed them in and made this other weird story. I don't know another way to describe what like we watched. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, I. You're right. Uh, the the only thing that's actually believable in, in in the entire thing is that despite the rest of the plot, that's just kind of bizarre. Um. Is that Quasimodo wants a girlfriend? I can actually believe that. Yeah. Oh, I okay. totally believe that. You know, and that's like you said, that's the whole that's the whole existence for the movie as a vehicle is to get Quasimodo a girlfriend. Yes. There's no other purpose to this movie. No, because there's no character growth among it for for anybody really. No. There's no there's no plot line. There's no ultimate like the first movie. The reason why I really like it so much is because it it it's one of those movies. Like uh, Sally and I were talking about this on the way back from uh, from Disney when we were driving, and we were saying, you know, art is there to reveal something about the human condition, right? And it can be something that's funny, something that is tragic, something that is you know. But that's that's what art is for, and films are supposed to be art. This, the first film, the first Hunchback did that, right? It talked, it revealed things about class in, in society. It revealed things about the nature of, of humanity and things like that. Sure, it did it in a fun, easy-to-digest way, but it did that. Yep. This film is about selling DVDs. And yeah. Almost blatantly so. And I think it, it kills a lot, too, because, like, having seen the first movie and then seeing this like um in in the first in this movie there's two scenes where they kind of do this paris reveal right mm-hmm. right one in the beginning when he's climbing up and one towards like about two-thirds of the way when they go in that tower and i know we're really jumping around at this point right but both those are exact reveals that you get in the first movie and because the first movie the animation was so much better it makes these other two reveals like almost pointless I completely agree. You're right. They do that a lot in this, where they take things from the first movie and redo them. And since the animators in this are nowhere near as skilled, it just looks it, it looks like tracing almost. Like they literally put carbon paper over the first film and traced it, and they used that rough outline as what they did. 
it's it's very strange. Uh, the the one thing that that struck me though is you know typically with the like we talked about in some of the others with these direct to video they don't get the the original voice cast back. In this, not only did they get the original voice cast back, uh, with the exception of one of the gargoyles, Mary Wicks, uh, who played Laverne the gargoyle in the first, she passed away in between that movie and this one. Um, Tony Jay, who played Claude Frollo, Carl Frollo, died in the first movie, so he's not in this. Other than that, the entire voice cast comes back. So Tom, oh, one Pulse more, is, one more was changed. Oh, you're correct. David Ogden Steers, who was the archdeacon. Yeah. Is is replaced by Jim Cummings for the two lines that he has in the movie. That's right. Also, Mary Wicks died making the movie, the original movie, because somebody else finished yes. the movie for her. Just to be clear, she didn't die between the movies; she died oh, you're right. during it. You're right. Good point. But not only did they bring so like Demi Moore voices Esmeralda in this. Kevin Klein is Phoebus for the horrid things that he says in the movie. You know, Jason Alexander's back. Charles Kimbrough's back. So not only did they get the original cast back, they added Jennifer Love Hewitt as Madeline and Haley Joel Osment as Zephyr, which in 2002, that was a big deal when this movie came out. Yeah. And yet, with all of that voice talent, this is what they came up with. I got nothing. Yeah, no, okay. But, so, but to be... Well, wait, wait. Though you should, you should point out that they probably did what they typically do in Disney films anyway, which is the voice cat actors all do their voice acting, and then they go ahead and animate against what gets recorded. True. So it, they probably, when they recorded their parts, had no idea what was going to be going on for the actual, you know, for the animation and how it was all going to be strung together anyway. Especially since it was going over to Japan, they probably definitely didn't get to see anything. Yeah, my guess is they recorded this at least a year before anything ever came out, or, or much longer than that, even. Yeah, there was actually something I read that I was tr- I couldn't make heads or tails of, but uh, something that I, I think there was like five years spent on this movie. That I, is hard insane. to believe. Hard to believe, right? But I, it said something about that there that when Haley Joel Osment did his lines, he was nine years old, and the movie wasn't released until he was fourteen. That's insane. So that's five years. I, I, were they planning a whole different thing with this? Makes you know, makes me start to wonder. I, I would, I would wonder that because what they came up with, it feels like there's, like you said, this feels like there's just hodgepodges of things that were put together to make this. Because so the basic plot, like I said, they they open with this festival Lamore is going on, and then the as their you know this opening musical number because yes, this is a musical just like the first one, although the music is terrible, just like <laughs> most of the rest of the movie. Uh, as they're finishing up that first number, the circus comes to town, and the circus wagon shows up, and it's the Cirque du Saroche. Which is so obviously a Cirque du Soleil ripoff. Yeah. Like, the guy is dressed in the mask. He's doing the weird movements. I I don't know what purpose that served to do that. I I really didn't understand it either. It was just kind of sort of there. It's also really really weird. I mean, I get that they're supposed to be in France and – and actually be speaking French even though we're hearing, hearing English, I get that. It's just always weird in that, in that situation to hear the English but see 
yeah. the French, you know, I I think I mentioned that during when we did Ratatouille also. It's like I like Ratatouille for what it is, but you're still being presented a movie in English, and, you know, it's weird when you see everything in French. Yeah, it's true. You, you run into that problem a lot in, in some of these sorts of animated films. I'm not sure yeah. if there's a good a good solution for it, but it, you're right. It is a little strange. Uh, but so he does his little magic show and he's about to introduce his beautiful assistant, Madeline, and she's not there. And we flash over to Madeline. who's at the circus grounds, uh, who is doing a tightrope walk. And I use that term very loosely because she's about two feet off the ground as it is ultimately revealed. Yeah. And she's doing her whole thing and Sarouche comes in and it's revealed that, you know, he's basically a horrible, horrible person who has taken her in and is mistreating her. We don't know exactly why at this point, although it's revealed later, that he took her in because she tried to steal from him. And he took pity on her and took her in when she was six years old. And she's been with him ever since. Uh, he, however, wants her to go and befriend Quasimodo because he wants to steal the bell of Notre Dame, La Fidel, which is which translates to the faithful one, mm-hmm. which for some reason, and again, this does not make any sense to me, is a giant gold bell that is rusted and nasty on the outside, yet on the inside is covered with jewels and all sorts of riches and finery. Now, and po- and now, polished and mirrored and etc. Yeah, now, I have a question. Now, here's my question. Yeah, Wait, go I'm ahead, going to. Okay. I have a question. Yes. Why 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 isn't someone trying to steal that during the first movie? <laughs> I have a follow up. Because I agree with that question. I have a follow up question. Why would you put the jewels on the inside of the bell that Quasimodo's going to ring and the I don't know what you call it, striker, the clapper, I think, is going to hit all of the gold and the jewels and knock it loose. I I had the same thought. It just wasn't a well thought out plan. No, it was not. Yeah. I I, I was going to say, I think that in the first, the, the original Hunchback podcast that we discussed the naming of the bells, because the bells have names, if you remember, right? The, yes, we in, did. In, in the first movie, right, the, the four bells that he names are Jacqueline, Gabrielle, Goulamé, and Big Marie, right? This, yep. this one is La Fidel. Now, I can't verify except for there's one bell that's the main bell in the cathedral that has a name. I can't remember what it is, but everybody always talks about it. Is um, I, I couldn't find if any of the other bells are actually named, but I did learn that this year – last year, all the bells of the cathedral were melted down. Did you know this? I did not know that. Okay. The reason why is because they haven't been able to ring the bells in Notre Dame for several years because of their weight. They caused the whole building to shift. So what they decided to do is take the – the five bells that they had okay, and melt them down, and they're making nine smaller bells so that they can actually ring them. Okay. Oh, that's pretty cool. And in, in honor of this movie, they're actually naming one of them Marie. Oh, that's cool. Yes. Hold on. Let's be clear. Not in honor of Hunchback 2. No, not in sorry. Honor, honor of Hunchback 1 where, where, the, where his favorite bell is Big Marie. So. Yeah, yes, because nothing would be done in honor of Hunchback 2. No. Okay. No. I do have a question. They're Go. melting yes, all this. Bo- they're melting all these 
um, ringing bells. Yes. Are they doing any of this for money purposes? No, no, no. They're melting down. They're melting it down to use the metal to remake the new bells. Yes, but are they going to be using a lesser quality metal and saving some of the gold and trying to get money that way? No, no. It's the same bell. And usually, actually, okay. okay. First of all, you would never ever make a bell out of gold. Good point. You would never, ever, 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 ever make a bell out of gold. Okay. Uh, because, right, because the, the clapper would dent it and it wouldn't actually ring. It would kind of sink in. That's why they're usually copper or brass or something that's a little bit more durable. Yep. Yeah. This When you say this plan wasn't thought through, I think that applies to the making of the film. <laughs> because that part... Like it's hard to believe, and I don't, I, I don't say that from a like to make a joke. Like I, it's hard to believe that he's gonna steal the bell. First of all, it's hard to believe that the bell is made in the way it is. Like my six-year-old said, why would they put the gold on the inside? Okay, and she's the target audience for this sort of thing. Yep. And it's hard to believe that a guy is going to go and steal a bell that is probably as big as, what, 10? You could fit 10, 12 people inside it? That's true. I mean, back then it's as big as some people's houses. Yeah. So yeah. immediately you have a believability problem with the central thrust of the film, which is this guy's going to steal the bell, and the way he's going to do it is he's going to get Madeline to trick Quasimodo. Which may not be a hard thing to do. True enough. Because, like we said, Quasi is looking for a girl. He sings about it at a certain point before he actually meets Madeline, who comes up to – she just walks in and walks all the way up to uh, the top of the tower to see him, and they start sort of flirting before she sees his face. And when she finally does see his face, then she recoils in horror, as you are wont to do when seeing Quasimodo's face. Yes, but something else happens before that. Oh, what 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 I for, she, what she, did I forget? She, no, no, or she sees she my mind. We see that she sees that the gargoyles move around. Yes, that is a very good point. So this was a big point in the first movie, and we talked about this at length, as I recall. Is that yes. Quasimodo is the only person who sees the gargoyles move in the first film, right? Because it is implied, not stated, but implied. That he has gone a little wacko from being locked up in the bell tower by Judge Frollo for all these years. Yes, and they're his imaginary friends. That's yeah. the implication. Now, we don't deal with the fact in the first film that the, the gargoyles do move from place to place even when other people see them. Right? They're not in the same place as, as they always were. Oh, no, I think I remember discussing that we figured that he must be moving them around himself when oh, people you're right. were looking. We did discuss yeah. that. We did talk about that. In this, she sees the gargoyles move and comments on it. And also in this, we see them – like there's a certain point where Jolly the goat from the first film is up in the, in the top, which this, that's a whole other thing we got to talk about. <laughs> yes. But he's up there. I'm assuming it's a he. I don't know. Is Jolly he or she? I, I'm presuming based on the end of the movie is she. I don't think that was the case in the first movie, but that's a whole other story. Well, you know. Uh, but Jolly the Goat, the unisex goat, is up in the tower and is talking to the Jason Alexander Gargoyle. Uh, is that Victor or Hugo? I think that's Hugo, isn't it? 
Uh, I would have to look, but I think Hugo sounds good. Yeah. And Hugo the Gargoyle moves and kisses Jolly because, as we find out at the very beginning, or the very end of the movie, as you mentioned, Todd, Hugo the Gargoyle is in love with Jolly the Goat. Say it again, just in case anyone missed it. Hugo the Stone Gargoyle is in love with Jolly the Goat. What can you do? And this is like a running subplot of this movie. And, and note, by running subplot, it doesn't run all that much because it's a short movie. <laughs> yes, the movie's an hour and six minutes long, which is which I was extremely grateful for, I might add. <laughs> but it, at least three times in the movie. That, again, the stone gargoyle is in love with Jolly the unisex goat. And that's just wrong. I'm just going to say that should not be in this movie. The movie shouldn't exist in general, but if you're going to make this movie, don't put that in it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. It's probably very funny in Japan. I don't know. <laughs> it's an explanation. That's probably the best explanation you could give. Honestly. Yes, but so as we said, Madeline runs away from Quasimodo, but Sarouche, who is the head of the circus, wants her to keep following him. So when she goes out the next day, she's sent back to try and you know get over her Quasimodo fear. She sees him at the circus with Zephyr, the kid, who apparently Quasimodo is like the uncle or you know whatever because Phoebus and Esmeralda just leave him with Quasimodo and wander off from the circus never to be seen for another 20 minutes and leave Zephyr with Quasi. And they play together, and eventually he falls asleep in Quasimodo's arms, uh, and he ends up giving him back, giving them back uh, to Phoebus and Esmeralda. And then Madeline, seeing this, she realizes that oh, Quasimodo's not that bad. Uh, and then he, she starts acquainting herself with Quasimodo and takes him and the two of them wander around Paris doing all sorts of things, uh, including dancing in the rain in a lightning storm. (laughs) I I got nothing for that. I just, that's what they do. That's during their love montage, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Their love montage, which is, which I would I would almost rather have seen the love montage of Jolly and Hugo, because <laughs> it would have been at least memorable. Whereas this is just kind of cribbed from every romance cliche you can figure. You know what I mean? Like it, there's I don't even remember all the things they did. Except for the end of light of dancing in the lightning storm, <laughs> I might have written them down when we get to it. I don't know. <laughs> I'll I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are a few things going on during the magic act. Yes. Um, one one one, one big in, one. Yeah. One. Well, we'll get to the big one. Well, there. Well, actually, there's there's basically we call this the main plot and. The, one ties to the main plot and one ties to the Phoebus subplot, right? Um, one is that while people are watching the magic show is there's all sorts of pickpockets in the audience who are m- members of the circus stealing everyone's things. 
Yeah, so they're basically the Ringmaster's Circus of Crime, for those of you who love your Marvel comics. That's, that's right, except without the big swirly hypno thing on the top hat. Correct. Yes. Sandy, what you're talking about? I knew you did. <laughs> and, I had um, no doubt. <laughs> the, the other thing is, is uh, somehow Sharush, is that how you say his name? Sure. I really know. Um, set, uh, makes an elephant disappear. Yes, which is important to the main plot of the movie in a way that we will talk about later makes no sense, sense. whatsoever. Yes, I, I'm not getting <laughs> it at all. I was gonna, yes. I, we'll, we'll talk about that later when we get there because I agree with you. It makes no sense whatsoever. Right, because let's be clear. He makes an elephant disappear. He is standing on a stage. Mm-hmm. That is constructed from the ground. So if you have half a brain, you can figure out how he did the trick. Right? There's Theory. a trap. Yeah, there's a trap door. The elephant goes through the trap door. I'm still not sure how you don't hear an elephant fall through a trap door. Agreed, but, you know, I was willing to give them a pass on that one considering all the other egregious things that happen in this movie. I so, refer you back to the aforementioned gargoyle goat romance. Right. Also, here, here's a funny thing, right? Like, Quasimodo, when he starts talking with Madeline, like, immediately after this, right? He mentions you, yes. you have, he talks to her about how great his, his, how great his her job must be because she, uh, all she has to do is distract the audience from the, tr- from the actual what's go- of what's going on so that Sarush can do his thing, right? Yeah. Okay. But here's the thing. So that means he knows how the elephant was disappeared. So how come at the end they need to release her to know that what he did, where, where, where Sarush went, right? Because he knows the trick too. I, I'm just saying. Well, first of all, I think he would be distracted by the fact that at the end, the way the trick is done, as it is explained here, is not humanly possible. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and address this. Because, <laughs> all right. All right, because the plot is they're going to steal the bell, right? That's the plot, yes. That's the plot. Madeline's going to distract Quasimodo, and Sarush is going to steal the bell. Yes. Right, so you would expect him to carry the circus of crime up the stairs, they would cart the bell off, and off they go. Yes. Right? That would be mm-hmm. the expected way to do it. I agree. Uh, Now, again, as I'm watching the whole movie, I'm going, how are they going to cart a bell through the stairs, through the front door of Notre Dame, and nobody see this? But but it would have been believable had it happened. Correct. Yes. So if they had done that, if they had carried the bell out the front door, it would have been silly, but it could have been done. Well, okay. Based on what he's doing, if had the bell been on the first floor – Instead of nine miles up in the tower? Yes. Okay. I could have believed it because the catacombs from – if you remember from the first movie, to run underneath the Notre Dame Cathedral. I don't know if that's true in France, but for purposes of the first movie, that was true, right? So instead, he goes up to the top of the tower with a couple of members of his crazy circus thing. Even though there's no one there. No, no, literally a couple. There's only two guys with him. Yes. <laughs> and, and even though there's no one there, I would like to repeat that. He puts the magic curtain on the bell. 
to fool the people who aren't watching him. Yes. And then does his magic words, and the bell disappears. Now, well, wait, wait, wait. First of all, now we we have a problem with the magic show, right? Yes. So did the two guys with him, because they're like, "Why are we doing this?" Yes, they do. <laughs> Which I like to think was the animators going, "This makes no sense. Who wrote this?" <laughs> I agree. Because the trick, again, as defined by the elephant trick, was you open a trap door, it goes underground, and you get you disappear the evidence, in that case the elephant, in this case the bell. As mentioned previously, the bell is in the tower of Notre Dame Cathedral. Does he drop it through a trap door down nine floors into the catacombs? And again, why don't we hear it? It's a bell. It makes noise. Yes, lots of noise, actually. And and why the curtain? To fool the people who aren't actually... Well, and to be fair, there are actually people there, but he doesn't know that. <laughs> but he puts up the curtain to fool, I guess, the two guys who are watching him who yes. know how the trick is performed? Yes. I only had one little theory. Maybe time travel. I would have accepted that better. It would have. Yes. Or had they showed it at least, like, maybe if they had actually given him some real magic powers, but it was fake magic. Yes. They they point out strongly in the movie that it is charlatan magic several times. Therefore, there is no way he can really make the bell teleport anywhere. Whatsoever. There is no bell teleportation power. That is not that is not in the cards here. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's bad people. But so back to back to the circus. We we talked about the circus and we talked about Madeline and Quasimodo's night on the town. Yep. Oh oh you know what we didn't talk about? We didn't talk about the narcissism. That hasn't come up yet. Yeah, actually it has. Please enlighten me. Oh, the whole thing with uh, Sharush, how much he loves himself and how he's constantly got pictures of himself anywhere in mirrors and he's always admiring himself. Yes, very true. Yes. There, there's like six scenes in the movie with it. Note, note, there's six scenes in an hour movie about yeah. the guy's narcissism. Um, there's also um, six scenes about <laughs> um, the... Esmeralda and Phoebus with the um, stereotyping. Yes. Well, yeah, it, it's, it, that's what we were saying earlier is that no matter what Phoebus says in this movie, he makes someone mad, and it's usually Esmeralda or Quasimodo. I just yes. don't get – I understand that, you know, but she – I mean, they were his only likely suspects. That's the one <laughs> thing that made me upset. Although it was he not, was stereotyping them, I agree. I agree. It was not a difficult case to solve. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> so, what Cheryl's referring to is the townspeople get all worked up because all their stuff is stolen. Right? And they're in the square, and they're basically attacking Phoebus, saying, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Now, now, it doesn't occur to anyone 
to talk to the person to their left and go, hey, when did your stuff disappear? Hey, mine disappeared at the circus. Wait a minute, so did mine. That apparently does not happen. No, it doesn't. And it, and it doesn't occur to Phoebus until he gets away from the crowd, and then he goes, hey, the circus was yesterday, and these people lost all their stuff. Yesterday. Yesterday. And that's when, as Cheryl says, he then accuses the circus of doing it, and he says those types of people in front of Esmeralda, which is completely unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. I got nothing. <laughs> it's like I, I said, they, they, were, they were not the same characters, so it's, it's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, because that was the whole point of the first movie. Their relationship was he had to get over the whole you know, gypsies are bad. Gypsies and circus folk are bad thing. And in this movie, he's referring to them as those people. That's not good. It's also it's six years later. It's like, why would they ever even imply that he had any sort of attitude like the one that he had at the beginning of the last movie, but had gotten rid of by the end of the last movie, six years later? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's basically they're. I don't know. I just – like I said, it, they're not the same characters. No, not at all. Quasimodo is, is actually pretty much the same character. True. Very true. Okay. Uh, because in the first movie, he was all about getting the girl too. He yep. just didn't. That's right. Which was, which was ultimately the right way to go and probably the way they should have gone with this, but that's a whole other story. But yes, so they do that, and then we see that uh, Quasimodo and Madeline in the cathedral. We we talked about you know after their big night out, and Madeline dries off uh, behind a curtain, and he shows her La Fidel and shows her the figurine he made, and she she kisses him on the forehead, uh, and and Quasi is you know he's over the moon. So the next day, when as we mentioned before, Esmeralda, the wife of the captain of the guard, is doing her dance of love in the town square, which she is joined, which if you remember the first movie, like this is the, this, this is the dance that brought Claude Frollo to ruin. Like yes. she ruined a man's life with this dance. And she's so, dancing with children. It, thank you. That's exactly <laughs> where I was going with that. <laughs> but to, to, to be fair, she's like, they all come up on stage to dance with her and then she leaves them there. Yes, in the middle of the dance, because Quasimodo leans out from behind a curtain, and he says, Esmeralda, I need your help. And so she does a little two-step and disappears. She doesn't say right. anything to the crowd. She doesn't go, you know, she's only been on stage for, what, 10 seconds? Yeah. That poor showmanship, Esmeralda. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but so he, Esmeralda says, oh, well, obviously you're in love, because Quasimodo says, you know, I'm sick, and then I'm happy, and uh, I'm full of energy, and all this, you know, back and forth. And she says, well, of course you're in love. Uh, you need to tell Madeline how you feel. And that's when Phoebus comes in and says, oh, the circus is responsible for these thefts, those horrible people, and makes Esmeralda all mad, makes Quasimodo mad because it implies that Madeline might be part of the whole thing. And so everybody is mad at Phoebus. Except for the horse. Yes, except for the horse, which which they even ruined the horse. (laughs) The, The horse in the first movie was good. Remember he sat on Phoebus? Yes. 
and now the horse now at least the horse does have a little bit of attitude because he 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 does the Roy Rogers and Trigger thing where he counts out how many times Phoebus has been wrong three times in the movie. Yes. So there's like about twenty minutes of singing in the movie, ten minutes of the Sarush guy being narcissistic in the mirror, right? Yes. Narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Sorry, gotta get all my s's in there. And um, then there is the the trigger Roy Rogers scene, right? Which happens three times in the movie. So there's another like six minutes right there, and, and it just keeps going on and on like this, where they where they waste a lot of time with things that are not plot because the plot in this movie is so weak. It they just had to fill in all the Swiss cheese with stuff. Yes. It's practically non-existent. Yeah, it's. I don't know. It's very, very bad. Very, very, very bad. So the, what what ends up happening is Phoebus goes to Sarouche to question him after Sarouche has just told Madeline to go and distract Quasimodo because they're going to go steal the bell. Uh, when Phoebus goes to investigate, he finds one of the things in Sarouche's tent or carriage, I guess it is. But, by uh, the way, did you catch the uh, the Batman references in this scene? No, but I did catch that Mickey's sorcerer hat was sitting next to the box of stolen jewels. Yes. And I felt insulted. Yes. It wasn't even like a well-drawn one either. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Well, that's the hat that he steals, the one piece of jewelry that he finds. He st- he sticks under the hat. Yes. That's, right. But okay. So the first is a is a uh, 1966 television Batman reference where when he goes into the room, he's got a bust of himself. And he pulls back the top of the head and hits the button and then all the – all the paintings of himself show up in the room. That's yes. like how they used to do the bat pull on the old show. Remember, they used to okay, have the Shakespeare yeah, bust. Yeah. Okay, yep, so that's like that. a, that's a direct reference. Then, if you look at him, Cheryl points out that there's like once he takes off the, the hair on the top of his head and he gets and he kind of like changes his shape a little bit. He looks like the animated Joker almost, right? Oh, he does. You're right. Actually, yeah. my problem was with that bad joke. Which was the I, I I remember that there was a bad joke, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, um, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. He said there's been a what, Cheryl like had to like pause and cry at this line because he goes, uh, Phoebus runs into his tent and says uh, there's been a rash of robbery since the circus came into town, and he says, oh well, I hear some ointment might help with that. And Cheryl was like, I can't stand this movie anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I I about tapped out at that point. I agree. <laughs> It, it was it was bad, yeah. But like you said, Phoebus finds one of the jewels under the hat, and he says, "Oh, you're responsible for the robberies." And Saroosh says, "No, it was Madeline," because he knows at that point that Madeline is out with Quasimodo, and they're walking along the river. And this is when we have the scene of Saroosh going up to the cathedral to steal the to steal La Fidelle, not knowing that he was followed by Zephyr and Jolly the Goat. Yes. And so they are trying to, you know, they are trying to sneak around and watch what's going on. Meanwhile, the gargoyles, who are figments of Quasimodo's imagination, I just want that to be clear. That is what they were intended to be, are trying to move a bell and drop it on Sarouche and his two henchmen. Yes. And they end up dropping it on themselves. And the gargoyles, who again are not animate objects or not intended to be. Laverne slams herself into the side of the bell 
And that makes a sound, which Quasimodo hears, and has to run back to the cathedral. And everybody starts hearing what's going on. Sarush escapes with Lafodel, and Clopin basically comes in out of nowhere and says, "Oh, if we don't have the bell, the festival's ruined." <laughs> I do have one more problem with this scene. Yes, uh, we could go on all night, but please. The part where they, where, where, what are the gargoyles are supposed to hold the rope? Yes, <laughs> and doesn't. Obviously, because they don't have opposable thumbs. And let's not forget, they aren't animate objects. They're figments of Quasimodo's imagination. Not only do they not have opposable thumbs, not only do they not talk, not only do they not move, they don't carry ropes or bells. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's no explanation for it. By the way, I want to point out that now I'm at the part with my notes about the making the bell disappear. And I have all these question marks all over the place. Like, what is going on? <laughs> and, and no one knows. No That's one knows. It's, it's one of life's, and I, would, I was going to say great mysteries, but it's not great. Yeah. So, yeah, so and now everyone scrambles to get the bell. Uh, Sarouche is is gone and Phoebus sends sends all the soldiers over Paris to find the bell. Quasimodo figures out that, you know, Madeline had, had tricked him and tells Phoebus he was right. Turns he Madeline in. Yep. Starts crying and turns Madeline in. He's just he's awful. <laughs> no, no, he, at this point in the movie he's crying with us. This is true. <laughs> By the way, did you notice so he starts crying because he turns her in and then he starts going up the stairs to the bell tower. Yeah. Did you see, like, it looked like the stairs were computer animated, and they look more realistic than anything else in the entire film. <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> but guess what? I'm not going back to find out either. No, I don't imagine you are. <laughs> but I'm serious. Like, if you, if, if you people are, you know, want the good laugh to watch this, like, the stairs in this, they, they, I think they were painted or something, and just the lighting made them look more realistic. But, like, every other background in the movie looks so bad that you look at this and you go, why Why does that look so good? It's just me. Yes. So Quasimodo, when he gets to the bell tower, pulls the bell off the gargoyles. They tell him that Zephyr followed Sarouche. We didn't see that happen. We see Zephyr say he's going to do it, but we didn't see him actually follow Sarouche because we don't know how Sarouche got the bell out of the tower. Well, where he actually is at this point. Yeah. Until... It's Madeline who tells them, you know, when, when they all get together, Quasi and Phoebus, Esmeralda, Madeline's locked in a prison cell and says, Sarouche took the bell underground into the catacombs, which Quasimodo should have already known, as you mentioned before, because he knows how the trick works. Yes. I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, and the goat escapes and then finds them. Yes, and it's the goat who leads them through the catacombs uh, and takes them to Sarouche and Zephyr. Sarouche is on a boat in the middle of the catacombs. There are soldiers on either side. There's a gate in front that Phoebus drops in front of him, and yet Sarouche thinks he holds up Zephyr and says, well, I'll kill him if you don't let me go. He's outnumbered at least 100 to 1. Yeah, I mean, all they would have had to do is put, like, an arrow through him. I don't understand. Yes. There's, but they there's don't. guards. Yeah, there's guards. I mean, they've got 
cro- it's the 1400s. The Paris guards had crossbows. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And they have Madeline with them because Esmeralda, apparently still upset and making Phoebus sleep on the couch, convinced everyone that you need to take her along because she knows what's going on. And because Phoebus doesn't want to sleep on the couch anymore, he says, okay. <laughs> that is the only motivation I can figure for why they bring her along. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Or just to have all the characters be there. Well, yeah, that's the story. That's the you know the the filmmaker reason. I'm saying from an actual quote unquote story reason. Oh, because it's her son. I think that's Roy. I think I that's what I gathered. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's true. She's probably true. willing to try anything to rescue her son because she's shown so much concern for him so far in the film. The, and I say that by saying no, she did not. The child has no personality. It's like nothing to the Except child. Except he does not like kissing and loving oh. and love. True. Because he keeps saying yuck. Good point. <laughs> that's all I've got from his. That's what I got we... from his personality is the, t- the one of a typical six year old, which is probably yes. as your daughter, Ryan. Is yeah. that when you bring up Valentine's or, or lovey stuff, they go yuck. Yes, true. So they, they, let, they let Sarush through the gate. And somehow Quasimodo and Madeline follow. Quasimodo starts trusting Madeline, creates a tightrope for her. She walks the tightrope, does this sort of swing down, grabs Zephyr out of Sarush's hand, and all of a sudden then Phoebus' men can quickly get Sarush and and recover the bell. I think I just figured it out. Okay. They wrote this movie backwards. They wrote this scene – made this scene and then decided how everything else would work so that they had all this information to feed into this scene. Think it about it, right? Me. It would not surprise me. Right, because everything, tight ropes, you know, Quasimodo, the goat, the whole thing, all of it just, it, I, I believe it was, it had to be written backwards. They had to have known how this scene was going to go, how they were going to rescue the kid, everything ahead of time to know to write it into the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Right. It's, the, it's right. the only thing that makes sense, and that's why it's so bad. Because <laughs> then because, that makes because the whole they were movie... trying to fit everything to a terrible scene. Right. Right. This the whole movie is this scene. That's 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 my conclusion. That's depressing. You're probably right, though. Yeah. Yeah, but so the, the the movie closes with the festival of Lamore going on, and Quasi is ringing the bell. And, you know, Phoebus and Esmeralda go up and proclaim their love for each other. Then all of a sudden the bell stops and everybody freaks out because Quasimodo took a break from ringing the bell for three days. And they look up and Quasimodo's kissing Madeline and Zephyr has to ring the bell, which, again, something that something that my son – now, granted, he's 11, so he's a little bit out of the target range of this – brought up is that no one in this movie seems to have any concern for the six-year-old boy – who is hanging out on the top of the tower and looking down over giant holes. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. he's ringing the bell at the end, and he's basically hanging off the string, which is flying over the edge of the cathedral. But I figured the goat, the lucky goat, is there watching him? So the, goat is, the goat is not watching him because the goat's too busy smooching the gargoyle. <laughs> oh. I was, I was guessing the goat was on guard duty. 
Well, it's a bad guard duty, I'm telling you right now, because that goat that goat is like the worst babysitter ever because all it's interested in is 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 Stoneface there. Because that's the end of the movie is the the gargoyle comes to life and kisses the goat and we all go to bed with nightmares. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's oh oh also we forgot to mention that Madeline actually has a legitimate conversation with the uh gargoyles at this point. You're right. So she sees the gargoyles and talks to them and they continue moving, which means that one of two things. The filmmakers completely ignored the whole premise of the gargoyles from the first movie, which is likely. I like to think that Madeline has been infected with Quasimodo psychosis (laughs) and therefore they are sharing the delusion together. They're in love and insane. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. Though, though to be fair, here, here's what probably happened. The, the guys who worked on this in Japan probably didn't understand that the, the whole thing that we've talked about about the gargoyles in the first movie is that they weren't real and they were a psychosis, right? Because they were his imaginary friends. They probably thought that's what the gargoyles were supposed to do and people were supposed to see them. Probably. I, I think I can understand the Japanese animators – not getting it because it's it's mainly done through dialogue in the first film. But right. I cannot forgive the American directors and filmmakers. Yeah. I don't know. It's just it's weird. I guess that's all I got to say. Like I said, the all everything that happens from beginning to this to this kiss at the end all just exists so that the kiss in the end happens. None of it matters. No. Nope. Anything else could have happened between there, and if they had Quasimodo kissed at the end, it would have had the same net result. Yes. Which I know kind of makes sense and is obvious, but what I'm saying is everything that happens is pointless. Yes, and nobody – as you've said many times, nobody is a character in the movie. They're all just archetypes that they throw in, and they don't even refer to those very much. Yeah, and and there's no – right, there's no character development. There's no real plot. Because stealing a thing is not a plot. Correct. Okay. A plot is it contains story, and there's no story elements here. No, not at all. Right. So, I think they really, really fail. So because, it, and and because there's no, there's no reason for the Sarush guy to be stealing the bell other than wanting money, which is good, except it's not established because he's not an established character, right? Like. In the first movie, right, you spend all this time realizing that Froyo is the bad guy, right? Yes. And then you slowly, over the course of the movie, peel away to why he's evil, right? So there's there's an opening of the character. There's a progression of the character. There's an understanding and a pact made with the character's characterization, right? Yep. There is none of that with the Surish guy. You're just supposed to assume this guy's a crazy guy who wears a corset and – wears a wig and puts on a magic show who wants to steal a bell and travels around in a traveling circus. So now think about what I just said because none of that fits together. Or makes any sense. Right. So I yes. guess I'm done. This... It's, it's bad. It's I do bad. have – I we did have two Star Wars references. Oh, okay. Although they did not help us at all. <laughs> it didn't make movie. things better. It no. didn't make this movie better. 
But I don't think it made the movie worse. How's that I don't think that would have been possible. But yes, please, enlighten us. Both Jim Cumming and Frank Bunker, who both have done voices on Star Wars video games, and in Star Wars The Clone Wars, I think, as well, um, yes, were in this movie. Yep. Just, a, just about all the rest of animation in the world. Yeah, true. Very true. <laughs> the two of them are in, so... <laughs> all right. Well, wait, wait. Before we rate, there's one more thing. So here's the thing. I th- there's this little blurb at the very end of the credits. Yes. Okay. Where they where they say this thing about this film would not have been possible without the inspiration from the original motion picture and work of its talented artists and animators. Can I point out that this is a sequel to the original movie, so that is obvious. And why would you ever put that in the credits? To stick a thumb in the eye of the people who worked on the original movie is the only I, thing I can think of. I, I don't know. It's just like it makes no sense. That statement, it's like, okay, yes, there wouldn't be a sequel without the original movie. Whoa, that's a concept. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? <laughs> the only thing I think of, maybe they reused art. That no. would surprise me. Well, actually it would because it would have been better. Maybe that's why it looks like it does, because they took the original things and then traced crayons over them. That I believe. That part I believe. I figured it out. All right. Cheryl, rate this so we can block it from our memories. One and a half. You're a very generous woman. Todd? (laughs) But we're not paying $2 again, though. I wouldn't pay $2 again for this movie. I would pay pay two bits. (laughs) I, I, I'm going to give this a half a star. Okay. That's I really fair. have... I, I think I, I think everybody gets my reasons at this point. I don't think I have any ex- elaboration no, no, no. to do. It's just half a star, done, move on. I am uh, I am going to rate this an unprecedented zero. <laughs> wow. There There is no redeeming quality here. Like, I looked hard. I, wa- I, I sat through this entire thing in one fell swoop as I said, with my family, trying to figure out something, anything that made sense in this movie, it wasn't there. So I cannot, I cannot, as Cheryl said, I don't recommend you paying the $2 to go rent this. I, um, you know, if you go out and buy the Blu-ray that has Hunchback 1 on it, I recommend that you try to sell the second disc to a used DVD store or something. Just, just don't. <laughs> don't do this to yourself kids don't watch this movie or you may go blind yes it's 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 bad stuff alright so I think cumulatively we're talking about a point six here is that about right somewhere in that range if roughly, you average the three of us out yeah roughly give or take yeah yeah so it's it's bad um, and, and there's really nothing done about it. So just, you, you've been warned now if you've listened to this show. So, you know, your the ball's in your court folks, but, uh, that's, that's our view of Hunchback 2. Um, it is, it is, it's not good. Is is what we're saying, but please don't hold that against the first one because the first film is actually quite good. And you can go back and listen to our show on that uh, we have that episode as well, so go back and search in the archives. You can find the, uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame 1 uh, podcast and listen to that, and, and you will enjoy that film and uh, that podcast as well. So please go back and check that out if you pick up the Blu-ray, which is now available in stores. 
All right, so that is going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, until next week, make sure you keep track with us. Uh, you can go to the website, DisneyFilmProject.com, and you can see the show notes for this show. You can, you can see Bree's blog on this movie, which I look forward to greatly. I look forward to her having to share this pain. Uh, and you can also find us on the social media. Go on Twitter at DizFilmProject when the show comes out and let us know what you think. And then also on Facebook at uh, Facebook.com and search Disney Film Project. You'll find us there. So until next week, we'll see you later, folks. That will never happen. I'll always be here for you. I'm rich. Rich. I wonder if they make diamond underwear. No prison could hold me. Wait, we can work this out. Did I mention I do birthday parties? Yes, that she sees the movie and, and none of that's that happening. Ryan? Ryan, none of that's happening. It did happen, I swear, I saw it. No, 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 um, no I meant. I did not see it, Todd, but I can't. <laughs> I must unsee the hunchback. I must unsee the hunchback. <laughs> I like how Sally tweeted out in the middle of the episode that she was sitting next to you and and couldn't and everybody should be really excited about this episode. <laughs> it's gonna be a fun one. The unisex goat. <laughs> Hashtag unisex goat. <laughs>